The strange and awkward thing about preaching in Advent is that several of the lectionary texts are of an apocalyptic nature. They seem to be about the end of the world. Now, that may seem a little odd or out of place in this season where we await a birth and a new beginning with great anticipation and joy. But the birth of Christ and the second coming of Christ are thematically entangled in the lectionary, and hence scriptures like this one that we hear on the first Sunday in Advent, when Jesus foretells his return and the worldly destruction and devastation that will precede it. It's nonetheless a timely text after some of the events of this past week in our nation, between the escalating nuclear tensions with North Korea and the myriad Facebook posts about how controversial tax reform will be remembered one day as the death knell of American democracy, there is much anxiety in the air about what the future holds. According to Jesus, however bad things might be, they're going to get worse before they get better. But they will get better. And taken in that context, we begin to realize that this text may not be about the end of the world at all, but rather a hopeful foretelling of its next chapter. A reading from Mark. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. A little frog 
decided one day to go see a fortune teller. The fortune teller looked deep into her crystal ball. You are going to meet a beautiful young maiden, she prophesied. From the moment she sets eyes on you, she will have an insatiable desire to know all about you. She will be compelled to get close to you. You will fascinate her. Where is this going to happen? The frog asked excitedly. Oh, please do tell me. Biology class, she replied. I've never put much stock in uh, professional psychics or tellers of fortunes, but when faced with this biblical text about a prophecy that forecasts things to come, I decided that I needed to get a little first-hand experience of peering into the future. I didn't really feel qualified to talk about prophecy without experiencing just a little bit of it for myself. And in any case, I've always sort of wanted to go see a psychic. So I remembered a place near my old apartment, a second floor office with a blazing neon sign that promised glimpses into my future. It was locked. I dialed the number posted on the door, and no one answered, but my phone identified the name on the other end as a Ms. Anita Bucks. I can't think of a better name for a fortune teller. Anita Bucks. But she wasn't getting my bucks, so I moved on to the next place. The hours listed on the door indicated that this next establishment was open, as did the flashing neon sign in the window. But again, the door was locked. Now it's embarrassing, I have to tell you, standing outside of a psychic storefront, ringing the doorbell and knocking desperately while people on the street pass you by. Again, I dialed the number on the door, and this time, a woman answered. Hello, she said, her voice sounding just a little bit angry. Who is this? I told her that I was a potential customer, that I would like to make an appointment and then have my fortune told. I'll call you back in 15 minutes, she spat back and hung up the phone. Fifteen minutes later, my phone rang, just as she'd predicted it would. <laughs> I was already impressed. When do you want to come in, she asked, sounding rather hurried. I suggested two or three times over the next couple of days, and she told me that none of those would work. I can only see you after five o'clock, she said. Well, I don't know if I can do that, I replied, but the the sign on your shop says that walk-ins are welcome, so maybe I'll just pop in after 5 o'clock if I can. You can't do that, she shouted. I almost dropped the phone. I was so startled. If you want to see me, you need to make an appointment. You need to decide right now. Well, I didn't care much for this woman's tone. How about this, I offered. If you can really see the future, why don't you tell me when I'm going to come by? All right, I didn't actually say that. <laughs> but I was thinking it. And since she's psychic, it's basically the same thing as saying it out loud. So, yeah, I really told her. <laughs> Alas, aside from that brief conversation on the phone, I never did end up getting to meet a real psychic or even a phony one. Turns out these folks are not easy to see. 
not unlike the future itself. In this parable from Mark's gospel, Jesus shares a prophecy for telling his return to earth, the second coming, if you will, which many Christians have come to associate with the end of the world, the end of time. But Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back. About that day or hour, he tells us, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the sun. Apparently, even Jesus can't see into the future. But it's likely, I think, that the author of Mark's gospel believed that that day was imminent, that it was just around the corner. Scholars generally agree that Mark was the first of the four gospels to be composed and that it was written around the year 70 of the Common Era or shortly thereafter. Now that was the same year that Jewish and Roman tensions erupted into open war and the Romans destroyed the Jerusalem temple in retaliation. Now Jesus said that bad things would happen before he came back, that they would herald his advent just as the blossoming fig tree heralds the return of summer. And the destruction of the temple was as bad as bad gets. It was just about the worst thing that could have possibly happened to these people. It was almost like killing their God. Indeed, as Jesus foretold, the very powers of heaven would be shaken. His return couldn't be far off. But to be clear, that doesn't necessarily mean that the author of Mark's gospel believed the world was going to end. On the contrary, he was waiting for a new beginning. You see, this passage from Mark is a classic example of ancient apocalyptic literature. Now, this is a very specific literary genre with a few very specific hallmarks. First, it's divinely revealed. The very word apocalypse is Greek for revelation, and so apocalyptic literature is always presented as a a vision or a prophecy or a dream, a revelation from some cosmic authority. In this case, it comes from Jesus. Second hallmark of this literary genre is that these writings often emerge in a context of political oppression. That's why they always talk about things getting worse before they get better. They are written in the midst of hard times. And finally, they prophesy a savior who will upend the social order and knock the tyrants off their thrones. The Messiah does not destroy the world. He sets it right. Other biblical examples of this apocalyptic literature, like the book of Daniel in the Old Testament that was written after the temple was destroyed the first time back in the 6th century BCE, or the book of Revelation, likely composed during the Roman emperor Nero's persecution of Christians. These bear the same hallmarks. These were dark times for the people who wrote these things down. Everything was falling apart, and they were praying for someone to put it all back together. Now, this is all an academic and rather long-winded way of saying that this text from Mark's gospel isn't really about the end of the world at all. Nor is 
The destruction of the temple, as bad as it was, it was not the end of the world. Nor is the current age we live in, for all of its demagoguery and division and decline. The world is changing. There's no denying that. Just a few days ago, I took my sons to the Charlestown shopping mall in St. Charles, a place perched upon the very precipice of oblivion. The only operating businesses left are a Von Mauer and an old movie theater. The rest of the place has been totally shuttered and left behind in the land that time forgot. But oddly enough, it's still open, or it was anyway until this past Friday when it finally closed its doors. We went there at dusk, and we were greeted by a lonely volunteer from the Salvation Army, ringing his bell and collecting funds for their annual Christmas drive against all hope in this empty place. He sat in a chair in the main entryway, the bell echoing through the halls. There wasn't another soul in sight, though when I looked up, I did see a bored security guard leaning against the railing in the second floor. But as I explored the mall further, my boys running ahead of me, oblivious to the oblivion, I began to notice small groups of other visitors shambling through the halls like ghosts. I was reminded immediately of the 1978 horror classic Dawn of the Dead, in which survivors of a zombie apocalypse take shelter in a shopping mall. As they watch the undead roam amongst the abandoned merchandise, one of them asks another, why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, the other replies. Memory of what they used to do. This place was an important part of their lives. Indeed, the mall has been a central hub of social and economic activity since the 1960s, a veritable temple of commerce an important place in people's lives. But as I'm sure you know, that's projected to change. According to economic forecasters, about a quarter of all shopping malls in the United States are expected to close in the next five years. And as sellers like Amazon.com keep on growing, their CEO is now worth $100 billion, the decline is likely to continue. We can't predict the future, but we can see the writing on the wall. And it's no secret that a lot of people are saying the same things about churches. I could give you a bunch of statistics, but you've probably heard them all already. Bottom line is fewer and fewer people are attending church these days. Our church is faring rather well. But in general terms, the institutional predictions are not good. And looking at the state of things, I'm reminded of a song that's uh, appeared on Leonard Cohen's last album before he died called Steer Your Way. Steer your way past the ruins of the altar and the mall. Steer your way through the fables of creation and the fall. Steer your way past the palaces that rise above the rot, year by year, month by month, day by day, thought by thought. 
I was visiting another UCC church this past summer where a friend of mine is the pastor, and he was doing a theological Q&A in lieu of a sermon that morning. Now, one of their members rose their hand and asked about this very thing, about the future of the mainline Christian church and whether he thought it would survive the next few decades. My son, as you know, the pastor replied, is about to head off to divinity school in the fall to follow in my footsteps. And I have to confess that I really struggled with his decision. I didn't know whether to celebrate with him or to try to talk him out of it. I mean, part of me worries that he's not even going to have a job in another 15 or 20 years. He paused a moment before resuming a more hopeful posture. But I've come to realize that if the church is going to survive and thrive, he continued, it's going to need strong leadership. It will probably look very different in 50 years than it does today. But if we believe in the power of the gospel, and I do, then I have to believe that it can endure a changing world. In the words of Jesus that we heard this morning, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. The world is changing, and sometimes I know it feels like things are falling apart. Sometimes I feel that way too. Our nation is divided. Our politics are toxic beyond all imagination. And many of the institutions we've come to depend on are slowly disappearing. But as we begin this season of Advent and look toward the birth of Christ in the world, we remember that his word endures. We remember that Christ is born again in each of us every time we act upon his word and follow in his footsteps. The light of the world, the light of God, it's in each of us, it's in you, it's in me. However bright or dim on a given day, and by its light we steer our way. Yeah, I know, things may well get worse before they get better. But by the light of God, we keep on keeping on. We keep on rebuilding the world. It might look different this time around. And in some places, it might look just plain wrong. But as long as we're still here to keep rebuilding... Well, we're still here. As my sons and I were leaving the mall, I noticed a gang of middle schoolers attempting to loot one of the candy machines in the hall. Clearly, this place was finished. But as we reached the exit, I noticed a large sign on the wall that I'd somehow missed when I came in. It was a plan for redeveloping the space. Regardless of economic trends and the grim forecast for shopping malls like this, they were going to keep building. Truthfully, I'd prefer they used it for affordable housing or something like that, but on the upside, I have to say there is something bold and refreshing 
about rejecting the dire predictions for brick and mortar retail and just doing it anyway. Sometimes the writing on the wall can be a hopeful word. Now this may sound like a rather bold statement, but I don't actually believe that God has a plan per se. I don't think the future has been predetermined or that it can be predicted. I don't think there's a grand design that can be hung up on a wall for all to see. But I believe that God has a will and a desire for what the world ought to look like. And it's up to us to ensure that God's will is done. While he was campaigning for the presidency in Texas, just two years before the Cuban Missile Crisis, Senator John F. Kennedy shared a story that he was fond of telling. It was a story about Colonel Davenport, the Speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives in 1789. One afternoon of that year, a terrible storm fell over Hartford. The sky beyond the windows of the chamber grew dark, darker than anyone had ever seen. Now, these were God-fearing times and God-fearing men, and many of the politicians gathered there fell to their knees, believing that the last judgment had begun and the end of the world was at hand. They feared judgment, not from the special interest groups who lined their pockets, not from their voter base who had the power to reelect them. They feared judgment from God for their sins. Colonel Davenport silenced the clamor that had arisen, standing up and declaring order. And then he pronounced in a strong voice, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought. May we also bring candles. Bring them everywhere you go. Bring them home. Bring them to work. Bring them to the halls of commerce, the halls of power, the very halls of heaven, the very gates of hell. Bring them to this table. And by their lights, let us steer our way, year by year, month by month, day by day, thought by thought. Amen.